This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Ramin Muhammad, a host of the New Books Network. Today, I am talking to Dr. Evienne Leidig about her new book, Women of the Far Right, Social Media Influencers and Online Radicalization. Dr. Leidig is a Marie Sklaudowska Curie postdoctoral fellow at Tilburg University. She is affiliated with the Center of Research on Extremism at the University of Oslo, the Global Network on Extremism and Technology in London, and the International Center for Counterterrorism in The Hague. Welcome to the show, Dr. Leidig. How are you doing? Great. Thanks for having me. No, thank you. The pleasure is mine. So let's dive into the questions. So my first question is, can you tell us what your book is about and what sparked the idea to write this book? So the title of the book is pretty descriptive uh, in terms of the focus on women of the far right, Uh, but I focus in particular on women who are prominent influencers on social media. So these are women who are known by their social media presences and really rose in their political careers, you could say, as being influencers uh, in these online spaces. Um, A lot of the women that I profile um, sort of began their political activism during the so-called alt-right years. Um, So this really started around 2015, 2016, um, and they became particularly known as being political commentators uh, on social media, particularly YouTube, um, during the Trump election and then presidency. Um, So I foreground a lot of the political activism during that time. um, And... Quite a few of these women have still continued um, as being political commentators. Um, but I think it's also really important to situate, you know, sort of what led to really the sparkings of their political careers in the this space or rather in the far right. Hmm. No, that's really interesting. So the next question I have is like throughout the book, you use the term political activism to describe the activities of these influencers. However, they claim they're not political themselves. Why would you use a specific label like political activism? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and, and I think a lot of it comes down to the fact that the way that I interpret these women's content creation and posting activity is that it's very intentional and strategic. I mean, these are women who... For some of them, you know, they are connected, say, to like offline organizations. And so there's a very clear connection there to other political social movements uh, within the far right scene. Um, 
whereas, you know, some are not. Um, uh, and despite that variance, though, um, my core argument of what I saw uh, in terms of these women's um, content creation was that they were very deliberately trying to get across political messages and ideology to their audiences, often framing it or um, providing more subtle postings uh, in order to do so. So uh, for example, a lot of the content that they post might be issues related to motherhood. Um, and, and that's everything from, you know, that stage of, of trying to conceive to be to becoming pregnant um, and then delivery and, and child rearing um, and sort of they'll exchange things like tips for breastfeeding or, or how to to diaper properly. Um, now, some people might see this as ostensibly a political content, right? It's just about motherhood blogging. And we've seen uh, that that's a mommy blogging sphere for for several years now. But then these women see their role uh, within the far right movement as trying to be role models for this motherhood, right? So they talk about how motherhood is empowering, how then it reproduces what they see as very traditional gender roles and what should be the duty of women within this far right movement, uh, which is to be the wives and mothers uh, of the movement. So for them, motherhood is an extremely political act. Um, but because it's not quite how we as society might understand politics, um, because it's constructed along these very gendered framings, um, these women are able to, in many ways, kind of slip under the radar of then what is actually the intent or the motivation for their online um, social media activity. No, no, that's very interesting. And I know you highlight that very well in the book. Um, but another question on labels I also want to talk about is you talk about like discourse and specific labeling. So there's kind of like this vagueness in the alt-right movement that shapes the discourse of labels in the community. So how would you define alt-right and how did some of these folks define alt-right? So this really comes down to quite a fundamental way that we see these actors and, and their types of activism. Um, and I will say that an early version of the book, I actually had included alt-right in the title instead of far-right. Um, and this was actually because, you know, I was writing about a very specific moment in time, uh, as I mentioned earlier, in terms of the years that these um, activists were most uh, visible on social media platforms, as well as how that coincided with Trump and the MAGA movement. Um, but then after talking to some scholars in this field, um, particularly those who had been working on far right and gender for decades even, you know, they were pointing out to me that is this not just at, at that time the most contemporary manifestation of the far right? Um, and I largely agreed with them because indeed, you know, as um, as the Trump presidency has passed, these women have still continued to be quite politically active and, and the change or rather the landscape of the far right has changed uh, after Trump left office. Um, so we don't see the same type of mobilization activities happening. Um, but, you know, these women have sort of continued on what is still very much a, a legacy of far right activism um, in terms of promoting the same ideas and, and ideological views, um, as well as um, 
you know, engaging in a type of politics, which I discuss in the book as metapolitical activism. So rather than trying to mobilize around votes for in the ballot box, these um, actors are very much trying to shape public um, consciousness around cultural and social issues, right? So that's why they don't necessarily um, speak explicitly about politics all the time. That's why they post things like motherhood content mm -hmm. um, to still get their message across, their agenda across. Um, but I think what's also a challenge in using label like alt-right is because um, at the peak of the so-called alt-right's popularity, these actors, people like Richard Spencer, for example, they were using that terms to self-describe. And so there's always a risk in terms of, do you actually call somebody a nationalist because they say that they are a nationalist? Or do you try to take a more critical stance and say, actually, no, this is more within the framework of fascism or Nazism, for example. Um, so speaking with scholars in this field, we sort of talked about, is that is using the term alt-right a very sanitizing label? Does it in some way sort of legitimize what is actually a, um, a very extreme movement, but alt-right just becomes a, a trendy way to describe it? And, and I will say that, you know, even if you're looking at media articles in 2017, 2016, they were all using this term alt-right because that just became a trendy label to um, describe this type of political movement. But indeed, you know, there is definitely a risk in in many ways sanitizing their form of politics through a label like alt-right. Mm, that's very interesting. And I love how you kind of encapsulate this idea of how these labels are almost kind of like time capsules within this movement in the book, especially that you highlight. And another question I wanna talk about self-describing is Pretty early on in the book, you talk about this moment when Lauren Chen and Michelle Malkin testify where they kind of lie in this community and they use terms like non-white and American. Who exactly are they trying to center in this political space and why that particular group? So the figures of Lauren Chen and Michelle Malkin, they're both women of color. Um, and, you know, they definitely are figures who I think many people would not consider to be part of the far right. Um, although we should bear in mind that throughout history, there have been several people who are ethnic and sexual minorities who have supported uh, far right agendas um, and visions. Um, now, the f people like, or rather, uh, sorry, <laughs> I was just getting a bit untied there. But um, you know, on the one hand, you know, Lauren Chen is a figure who I would say kind of traverses the boundary between more mainstream conservatism and the far right, although we can even debate that considering how much Trumpism has really hijacked the GOP in the U.S. and the conservative movement. Um, now, when Lauren Chen sort of began her political career on YouTube, she was definitely a lot more closely aligned with what we might consider to be more extreme or fringe uh, actors. Mm -hmm. But definitely she has become increasingly more popular amongst the conservative movement, kind of drifting away from the more extreme aspects of the political right. Um, so she, for example, has 
given speeches as well as an ambassador for Turning Point, uh, which is a student-led conservative movement uh, in the U.S. Um, and so I think for her, she's very attuned at framing her argument according to what has become the standard line of the political right, which is, you know, we can't be racist. We have people of color within our movement who, who agree mm. with our politics, right? So mm. she's very strategic about positioning herself according to that discourse. Whereas somebody like Michelle Malkin was, it's very interesting because she's somebody who I would say was a bit more situated within mainstream conservatism. I mean, she was, for example, somebody who frequently appeared on Fox News. And then she became increasingly more extreme uh, in her worldviews, um, you know, discussing things like Holocaust denial um, and aligning herself with fringe groups like the Gripers, for example. Um, so it's it's interesting to see her political trajectory in that way. I think I see... I'm trying to explain her because I... It's all, it's all good. In, in Take your time. Way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's fine. It's just um, I see her as... Uh, a figure who is looking for a political home in some mm -hmm. ways. Um, and so trying to align herself within the more extreme aspects of the political right um, still kind of works for, I think, that movement, which on the surface tries to say, you know, we're a lot more inclusive than you think. You know, we, we do have people of color within um, this movement supporting us, but... Um, I think it's oftentimes a lot more of a strategic positioning rather than a realistic one um, in terms of those politics. But I mean, by and large, I, I, I do write about people like Lauren Chen and Michelle Malkin in the book because I do want to also point out, you know, the, the part of the reason behind the success of far-right politics is because they are able to encapsulate that discourse about, you know, being more... Um, inclusive uh, and trying to normalize uh, a lot of their ideas um, to garner more mainstream appeal in that way. Just a side note, you know, I did think about writing about Candace Owens, for example, but uh, she's not a figure who I would say kind of rose to fame as an influencer. She was already somebody who was kind of part of that conservative establishment apparatus. So, um, I thought I thought about including her at one point, but at a certain at a certain stage, it's just you have to limit the scope of of what who you focus on. No, exactly. Yes, because to my knowledge, Candace Owens was more known as like a news anchor, someone who's already in a mainstream yeah. political space, versus these yeah. influencers who thrive off of social media to build their niche. Yes, that's precisely right, and and I think um, part of the story that I've try to tell in the book is the type of technology opportunities that really opened up to allow them to create that sort of alternative image to what we saw amongst um, establishment conservatism um, and 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 then the sort of types of audiences and, and sort of fame that they were able to receive uh, as a consequence of that so I think part of the story is talking about the fall right, but it's also talking about the role of technology here and how that was being weaponized by these influencers. 
Yes, um, and that makes sense because there is a, a bit of irony to the lifestyle of this influencer of these influencers. Um, you know, these women claim to be anti-feminist, but then they use uh, content and language about like women's empowerment, um, but like in their own way that runs their social media accounts. And some of this language really does stem from the popularity of social media. So can you talk about this paradox between them labeling themselves as anti-feminist yet kind of incorporating that empowerment language um, in their content? So there's two points I want to touch upon here. So the first is indeed at a surface level, these far-right women influencers ironically have benefited from the gains of feminism and women's rights movements uh, precisely because they many of them um, have attended college. They often um, had, I mean, even to the graduate level for, for a couple of them, um, they describe um, entering in corporate life, um, trying to sort of climb the, the social mobility ladder uh, through work. Um, these women also publish books and columns in um, in articles. They also own bank accounts where they can solicit those donations or um, income generated from advertising revenue on their YouTube videos. Um, they own property, right? These 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 are all uh, facts that have derived from the gains of feminist and women's rights movements that these women largely enjoy in their everyday lives. So there is that level of irony there. But the second point, which I think is quite important to recognize in this space, is these far-right women influencers use the language of empowerment and agency um, to argue that one should embrace femininity and, and not feminism, right? So they say that things like motherhood is empowering, and, and indeed those things are very valid. But the type of feminism that these far-right women influencers believe to be sort of the quote mainstream feminism, it's it's actually very much a misinterpretation of what feminism actually is. Um, by that I mean that these far-right women influencers, they see feminism in a very specific way, which is white feminism. Uh, and, and that has become mainstream feminism today, right? It's it's a lot about sort of embracing the public self. But actually, if you go back and look at the various waves of feminism, you will see the, the conflict that um, emerged during those waves, where, for example, um, a lot of Black women feminists talked about the need to recognize domestic labor and work as just being just as valid as a woman working in the public job. Now, for these far-right women influencers, I don't think they would ever acknowledge that indeed feminism is a very complicated uh, movement um, and that there are aspects of feminism that do, for example, um, embrace, you know, women's work in various arenas uh, of society. Um, but so when they talk about, fem or rather when these far-right women influencers talk about feminism, it's such a, a narrow lens through which they actually understand what feminism is. Oh, you're, that's a very great point to make. And it kind of falls into my next question. So when we're kind of talking about like language and like aesthetic choices, 
um, there's kind of like this very interesting aesthetic choice that a lot of far right influencers use. You know, like they'll have like their own version of like bustle, or they'll have like their own like version of YouTube and stuff like that. And the content in itself inherently, I remember at one point in the book you talk about like this very like all natural, very like holistic vibe that they're trying to go with their posts but then the message is like you know very very strong very far right so how does like those aesthetic choices make their content more digestible or how does it kind of impact how the message is received by an audience yeah that's a great question because indeed it it fundamentally comes down to visuals and aesthetics um and and, and you know to be fair those are um aspects of influencer culture period right it doesn't, mm -hmm. doesn't really matter if you have a, a political message uh, attached to that um and you know as i mentioned earlier with these far-right women influencers you know i talk about their activism in ways that is very intentional and strategic and and indeed that does come through in the aesthetics uh of their content creation and there's definitely a variance right so i mentioned in the book how one is really into like the homesteading cottage core the sort of what they call is the the crunchy mama uh, mm -hmm. stereotype someone really into holistic living um whereas you see others who are a bit more in terms of valorizing suburban life with the white picket fence right so there's definitely different tastes uh or different aesthetics to suit different audiences uh in this way um now fundamentally i i do think that posting according to these aesthetics is what I argue a strategy of retention because oftentimes people will come across these influencers not because they are interested in say mommy blogging or or food blogging right like to be fair these far-right women influencers are not the top influencers in those very big categories so rather my argument is once they actually draw people in from discussing political views, which initially was on their YouTube channels. Mm -hmm. Then they say, okay, take a look at my Instagram account. And on my Instagram account, I'm posting things like gardening with my kids or cooking dinner for my family. And so here I argue it's a way of retaining those audiences' interest in their content. And then also in a way, trying to present themselves in a more holistic image compared to their male counterparts. So we kind of talked a little bit earlier about what sort of drove my interest in this book. And at the time, particularly when it came to looking at media and sometimes even like academic uh, writings about the alt-right, it was always upon the men, right? It was always upon the men uh, out there um, mobilizing, particularly um, after Charlottesville um, at the Unite the Right rally in 2017. And what I found really interesting about the far-right women was, yes, they talked about political commentary or offered hot takes uh, like their male um, contemporaries, but these women were also posting on Instagram about gardening or cooking, right? So mm -hmm. um, I became really interested in understanding why are they trying to present themselves in a more holistic way to their audiences, and why do they use certain visuals and aesthetics to communicate their messaging? And it comes down to the fact that for many of these women, they see themselves as sort of like the role models of what they hope a future far-right society will look like. So it's um, it's very often a 
type of curated social media performance that that they are trying to get across to their followers. Um, but yeah, you mentioned some alternatives that they'll use. Um, one alternative to Bustle is EV Magazine, which become has now actually become a more popular magazine amongst conservatives. Uh, it was pretty small when I started writing about it. Um, but they use the same type of aesthetics and layout as you know, Bustle or even Jezebel, well, poor Jezebel uh, got shut down, unfortunately. Um, and there's definitely, I think, a drive to try to create alternative spaces of engagement, even though it's it has very mainstream aesthetics, you know, there's still this kind of push to create this in-group identity building within these alternative spaces. It's mm, very interesting. And you know, since we're kind of talking about like how a lot of like no what we would consider like normal everyday life being incorporated into like this far right movement, um, in chapter six, you talk about Lauren Southern's speech at Parliament being available on her YouTube channel. You know, what does that tell us about the progression of the you know far right movement offline? Now, so for those of you who are unfamiliar with Lauren. Southern, she was perhaps one of the most prominent alt-right activists. Um, she's still um, she's still active, um, although I would say perhaps not at their height of popularity as when she was in the alt-right. Um, and I focus in one chapter on looking at the offline connections of the alt-right and far-right. Um, through this example of Lauren Southern, who was giving a speech within the European Parliament um, talking about anti-immigration issues. Um, now, in terms of what this tells us about the offline effects, I mean, you know, now that we're entering the 2024 election cycle, I really don't know if uh, it's even more apparent than um, than what we're seeing right now in terms of what's happening within the Republican primaries. Um, but, you know, certainly we saw the very real offline effects of this type of far-right politics um, in display. So on the one hand, we saw within the legislative level, um, you know, the passing of legislation that was anti-immigrant, anti-abortion, anti LGBTQ policies, right? Like we saw over the, I'd say over the last 10 years, the institutionalization of far-right ideas um, mm -hmm. within these areas affecting people's everyday lives. Um, I know on the other hand, we also started to see, well, I would say related to that, I, I argue is also part of the mainstreaming effect of the far-right. Um, which means basically how a lot of these fringe ideas gain traction within the mainstream, um, so much so that they've become to be accepted as normal or as acceptable uh, views. Um, but I also kind of try to situate this by looking at it in a more international perspective as well. Um, although the alt-right sort of has its origins in the US, we saw aspects of the movement shift to transatlantic connections, as well as connections to Australia, basically to other white settler colonial societies. Um, and we started to see a lot of transnational mobilization happening amongst these actors. Um, so across Europe, across Australia, et cetera. Um, 
So much so that if we look at the world today and we look at the far right, it is a global phenomenon now, right? Um, no, I'm not saying that these far right women influencers I, I focus on the book are solely responsible for that, but they are definitely part of the bigger picture when it comes to understanding the far rights, you know, um, relationship to technology and mobilization, um, and through trying to sort of mobilize um, people into these political spaces uh, of action. So. Yeah, I don't, uh, I want to be careful there and saying like these women are not solely responsible for that, but it's definitely part of the story. Um, mm -hmm. And also them trying to highlight, you know, various um, issues around the world to say they're primarily North American audiences to sort of try to build that sense of, um, in a way, solidarity, one could say, uh, amongst mm -hmm. the far right movement. Oh, that's, that's pretty spot on. And I would say that, you know, talking about like the, this as like a global movement, you also talk about the difficulties combating the far right movement online. Can you tell us some obstacles that you observed while researching and writing this book? So I think one primary issue is a lot of these far right actors and users are always one step ahead when it comes to their posting activity. Um, now, bearing that in mind, that doesn't mean that we don't have a collective responsibility, nor do tech platforms, um, you know, not have a responsibility to act accordingly. Um, and I think one way in which I witnessed this in particular was um, in part uh, during the COVID pandemic, actually. Um, so I often saw these far right women influencers creating posts where they would do things like manipulate text or visuals to circumvent the moderation of their content. Um, so some of you might remember that during the pandemic, uh, posts that contain the words COVID or vaccine or Corona um, on, on Instagram would get this banner pop-up on posts that would direct users to a link for the World Health Organization's like official um, statistics about um, the pandemic. Now, these influencers picked up on that very quickly, and you know they started to manipulate words like vaccination by uh, you know using alternatives like the at sign or other characters um, to circumvent the flagging of their content. Right now, I do want to disclaim that by saying like this type of creative posting behavior, it's it's not unique to the far right. And definitely we saw this um, type of behavior with, for example, like eating disorder communities and, and pro-anorexia communities who were sort of using those same tactics to circumvent mm -hmm. regulation. Um, but despite that, you know, these... That was just an example of like, how these influencers would just try to find ways to be creative uh, in avoiding uh, regulation of their content. Um, now, I will say that what was interesting for me to notice was some of these influencers actually would receive, um, uh, or rather some of these influencers would get moderated for posting a lot of anti-vax uh, uh, or sort of content about the vaccine, but 
so they would get taken down like posts rather their posts would get taken down by Instagram. And yet, you know, I would also, I would, you know, in conversations with tech companies, I'd say, you know, yes, they are promoting scientific disinformation about the vaccine, but that's not it that they're just promoting. They're also promoting that along the lines of conspiratorial ideas about population control, uh, about immigration. Um, and so I'd say, yes, it's, it is scientific disinformation, but it's not only scientific disinformation, right? It's also tied in with their prior views around immigrants and um, and people of color and like so I think it's important to just add that nuance and that complexity because um what was interesting is that for several years a lot of these influencers wouldn't receive any action being taken on their accounts until they came to the pandemic and until they started posting about the vaccine um or about COVID um in general um so in regards to, to your question, um, you know, that's, those were just kind of a few of the examples that I had noticed when it came to some of the challenges, the very real challenges. But I do want to point out that by and large, these far one influencers have not suffered any action being taken on their social media content. And it has to do with what we discussed earlier in terms of, you know, them posting about mommy blogging or food blogging, right? Like these are things that aren't automatically flagged uh, as being hateful or harmful content. Until you understand the context in which these women operate, until you understand actually, no, them posting about motherhood, it is actually a very political thing and that's how they see their role within this movement. Um, other times it can turn um, quite explicit unexpectedly. So I remember one time watching a YouTube live stream between two influencers and it was focused on motherhood content. I remember very distinctly how like an hour into this two hour live stream, one of them was breastfeeding and talking about their duty to reproduce in order to save the white race. Now, unless you had been actively tracking that account, you know, someone would just say, oh yeah, that's some posting about motherhood. But no, actually, once you spend time in these spaces, then you sort of realize, okay, these are the sort of the flags that they'll put up once in a while um, to sort of indicate their more extreme beliefs. So that was one example. Another example was on Instagram, where often it was more on Instagram stories, because we know they disappear after 24 hours. Sometimes they would kind of um, put in more extreme text about like conspiracies of um, the Great Replacement, or sometimes it was text about like White Lives Matter, and they were sort of knowing that these were those content that would disappear within a few hours, um, post a lot more extreme stuff um, in those Instagram stories. So definitely that is part of the conversation when it comes to challenges and dealing with this content. But I think, you know, despite these really small details here and there, overall, I think the bigger issue is that there is a blind spot when it comes to recognizing the hateful and harmful content that these women do post and people not realizing, not recognizing like this is actually extremely problematic content. But they're able to traverse the borderline, you know, because they often don't say things that are as violative of that platform. You know, they'll just say things in coded language or they'll sort of say things that kind of skirts the edge of what is uh, allowed on these platforms and so they remain on them versus a lot of their male counterparts have been banned from several of these platforms. 
no um yeah you know thinking about it that is true and when you talk about ethics and responsibility towards the conclusion of the book you talk about having like this eth ethical conundrum about writing about these influencers and kind of worrying of like giving them a platform so how did you navigate that that question within you as you were getting ready to publish the book and write about it? So I think that's uh, the question about ethics um, and providing visibility to these actors, I think has sort of long been um, an issue amongst people who study uh, the far right. Um, you know, the way I, I saw it was I saw my role as somebody to help explain and to analyze what these women were doing, not necessarily to promote their work. Because ultimately, I had an argument, right, which was the fact that these women were normalizing and legitimizing far-right ideology for mainstream appeal. So I wanted to show how they were doing that. Um, now, I think there's also a slight aspect of it would be arrogant of me to also assume that for some reason, a person would pick up my book and then start following these women and get radicalized. I mean... I, I don't really know if I have the power to actually influence uh, someone's behavior in that way. These women are already very popular. They already have hundreds of thousands of subscribers and viewers, and, and they've been on the scene for a few years now. So, um, you know, people who are already know who they are most likely aren't aren't going to learn uh, and then become radicalized by um, sort of my work on this subject. At least I, I hope not. You know, if someone does, please reach out to me because uh, I'm curious about that. Um, but, you know, I, I found that um, ultimately the way that I would justify working and writing about these women was I really wanted to show the implications of this work, right? Which is ultimately, you know, the fact that these women do post quite hateful and harmful content. And I wanted to draw attention to that because even today, even when I um, go and talk to policymakers or law enforcement or tech companies, I mean, there's often this very, it's it sort of blows my mind how, how they don't recognize that, that these women are quite insidious uh, in, in what they promote. And they don't see that as, as being an obvious sign of what is far right politics. So um, sometimes I feel like it's, I'm, I'm uh, sort of uh, swimming against the tide in terms of trying to point out what is the, the harms of, of um, these influencers, but um, I think it's still worth pursuing. And, and, and I think, you know, the conversation is starting to change a little bit now in terms of, I think, people recognizing actually what the far right is instead of this stereotype that they might have. No, that's a great point, especially the shifting of public opinion as this very, like, you know, fringe, like, idea, which throughout the book you kind of highlight, like, normalizing, um, kind of the normalization and the incorporation of the far right movement into, like, everyday politics, and culture. Yeah. And, you know, unfortunately, this is all the time we have for today. I really enjoyed our conversation. And thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Lydig. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Yes, of course, the honor is mine.